Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're presenting our own version of a child's Christmas in Wales. Our favorite thoroughly Welsh guide is here to let us in on the traditions that bring light and warmth to the chilly Welsh countryside this time of year. Cold is the man who cannot love the hills of Wales. And for the next time you're in a rural area, like Wales or Scotland, or even New Zealand, we've got a fun lesson in sheep appreciation. Alad Owen joins us in a bit from his farm in Wales. He's won lots of international sheepdog breeders' competitions, and he's going to teach us a few tricks that he uses to get his trusty border collies to round up the sheep. We'll find out how to time your visit so that you can help feed a baby lamb and learn how the ewes and rams get those odd blue and green spots on their wall. Come along for holiday celebrations in Wales and a behind-the-scenes peek at sheep farming in charming Wales. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning to appreciate sheep and the shepherds and even the dogs that herd them, coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. With the scenic Welsh countryside as our setting today, let's start out with a taste of the holiday traditions that make the Christmas season in Wales so special. Martin Delandovitz, a friend and fellow tour guide from northern Wales, has joined us to talk about the holiday season in that corner of Britain. Martin, people think of going to a lot of places during the holidays. Why would somebody go to Wales during the holidays and what would they experience? That's a very good question. <laughs> Wales is on the west of Britain, and uh, it, it, it rarely freezes. So, and it rarely gets very cold. It, you know, the warm sea, well, relatively warm sea. So um, you can expect rain. So it gets dark early, drizzle. It gets dark at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You can expect drizzle, but it's not going to freeze. Okay. Yeah. Now, are people in a special mood during the holiday time? They are very much. A, a lot of today... Uh, popular culture. Wales is always sort of ambivalent. The trouble with Wales is it, it has its past, its great traditions, its, its great thing. But, but, you know, we watch Hollywood movies. And so it's pulled in one direction. The young people are pulled in one direction, which largely consists of consuming far too much alcohol and far too much food, you know, the usual Christmas fare. Whereas there is a, and you have to be honest about this, some of the, the Christmas traditions, although in some places they've always lived, the old traditions, mostly they're, they're being given the kiss of life, they're being revived, but they are, they are becoming increasingly popular. So when you think about Christmas time in Wales, is this a uh, small town, conservative, you know, yes. homey? Is there, uh, are the churches full during Christmas time? Yes, if, if at any time of year. You see, Wales always has been and still is in terms of Britain. When we talk about England, Scotland and Wales comprising Britain, uh, Wales is still the most uh, religious part of Britain. People, the greatest percentage of the population still attend places of worship. What is unique about a family Christmas celebration in Wales? How would that be different from in England, for instance? Well, the first thing, I come from Gwynedd. I come from the, the west of Wales and uh, northwest of Wales. The, the first thing to say is that, that, that Welsh is the language. Therefore, if you go to a, a midnight service or if you were to go to, to any other service, the, the service is almost certainly, unless specifically otherwise, it's in Welsh. And so the hymns, the carols that are sung there are in Welsh. And, and that is a, a, a real difference. Sing me a classic Christmas carol where I'd recognize the melody, but in Welsh, okay? Right. Now, it's, it's strictly not a carol, but it's uh, internationally known, you know. Let's hear a little bit um, of it in Welsh. Oer your course in methi carry, fa la 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 la. Heaven of voice and will come re, fa la 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 la. Either ever care can hesse, fa la 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 la. Will ya thou and void in nesav, fa la 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 la. Whoa, I should have known a Welshman will <laughs> sing at the, dry, at the smallest uh, opportunity. Hey, that's wonderful. Now, was that literally deck the halls? No, you see, this is it. It's not specifically. Okay. A uh, Christmas carol. It's it's it's, it's winter. Uh, the, the first two lines, "Oer your your gorse in methy carry, hen than will come Cold is the man who cannot love the hills of Wales. Okay, so this is a a holiday appreciation in the winter of Wales. But give me a Christmas carol, actually, just a few lines in Welsh, if you can, just. Um, Argavar have you born Vaban Bach, Vaban Bach, Agan with grave in Jessen Vaban Bach, Akadan Vaithor Bosra, Vedvor Gintar Sainar, A young guide and Galvarian Vaban Bach, Vaban Bach, and Signobron Maria Vaban Bach. And what did we just hear? 
Uh, it's uh, an old song which is sung usually at a service called Plugain, which is peculiarly Welsh. And um, it's I'll give a heavy body. Uh, because today is the morning on which the the root of Jesse was born, you get these people coming from Bosra and from China. And by his birth on that morning, Christ was tied to his fate on Calvary. Well, and, and the, the bit that I like. Best, Foreshadowing Calvary on yes, Christmas. Yes. In his birth, he was wow. tied to death. Well, feeding on the breast of Mary, which I think is a lovely touch. Yeah. And so you've got your, if I can just picture a small town in Wales where everybody's uh, sort of spilled into the church. Mm. And it is. See, Plugine is a funny service. It's held somewhere between three o'clock and six o'clock in the morning on Christmas morning. Really? And it's a leftover from pre-Reformation times. You know, Henry VIII reforming the church in the 1500s. Well, it's neither midnight mass nor is it morning service with communion. It's fitted in between. In between, so people yeah. lose a night's sleep. That's right. Because anybody who goes to that service is going to go to the midnight mass. Absolutely. And the Christmas morning. Well, they might do, or they may just do plug-in. And what people do is they hang around in different parts of Wales. They have different things they do. They might just play around in the streets, or they might join and make taffy, as they do here in America, the special <laughs> toffee. But the thing about the plug-in is it's sung then, and it's not organized. It may be a very short service, but you'll get up to 18, 20 different parties of people singing a carol. You can't sing a carol that's already been sung. So you must have a repertoire of at least 20. Wow. And threes and fours will come together and sing beautifully, all by candlelight. So this choral tradition in Wales is for real? It, it is for real. It's very, very strong. It's difficult to explain to people who haven't been there, and it's almost unadvertised. There are kitsch versions of it, like... You, you know, the romanticization of it, but it's very, very... It's in the soul. It's in it's the spirit. It's serious, yes. Yeah. And, I mean, I can tell with you, people in Wales break out into song and they break out into poetry. Yes, they do. Now, Christmas time, tell me from a children's point of view, do we have Santa Claus? Do we have yeah. stockings out? Do we give Santa Claus some milk and cookies? How does that work? Yeah, it's done more or less as you'd understand it in exactly the same way. Santa Claus or Father Christmas? Uh, Sean Corn. Who's that? Sean Corn is... Um, Sean Connery? Well, Sean is, is John, or Sean. John? Corn is, is the horn of plenty. Sean Corn. Really? So John, the horn of plenty. Yeah. Who's he, biblically he speaking? Is, he is Father Christmas. Father Christmas. Yeah. Is that a Christian thing or a pre-Christian pagan thing? Sean Corn is probably a combination of the two. All over Europe, you have the pagan traditions melded into the Christian tradition so the indigenous people can embrace the new faith. Yes, indeed, indeed. We have uh, Mary Lewid. Uh, in Wales, again, becoming more and more popular, where somebody dresses up as a horse and they go around the village going into the houses. They're singing, they're reciting, they're having sort of almost uh, competitions, you know, dressing up as a horse. Now, that's throughout Europe, too. You think of Morris dancing. There's often somebody that dresses up as a horse. So now, in Wales, is there the same political correctness and sensitivity in the United States where you really can't have a manger scene in a in a schoolyard or at the city hall, or are they more comfortable putting the Christian tradition into the secular world? They're, they're pretty comfortable with that. So there's not people that are going to say, I'm offended by that because it's not, uh, you know, some other religion's uh, holiday. It's just this is the, the time to celebrate Christmas in Wales, and the schools can do it and the, and the city hall can do it. Yeah, pretty much so. Give me the chronology. Is it basically the same as the United States? You'll have a big family dinner. You'll go to a midnight mass. The family will be together, and Santa Claus arrives, and the kids open up the presents on Christmas morning. Yes, that's, that's about it. I mean, other countries, you know, you're Germany on the 24th rather than on the, uh, the 25th of December. But generally speaking, yes, that's the case. Ireland has a little uh, Wren Day after Christmas. Yeah. Does, does Wales have something similar? Yeah, we have, we have hunting the Wren. What is that? Uh, on, the, on the 12th night. 12th night is January 6th then, right? Yeah, unless you're using the Julian calendar, in which case it's, it's the 14th. Or, uh, well, whatever, but, but uh, Italy yeah. has the same thing. That's on, right. Uh, what form it took in Wales is people would take a live wren. Now, of course, you wouldn't so this get is, away. First of all, the 12th days of Christmas. This is the 12th day after when the wise men finally brought the gifts to the Christ child. Yes, as I understand Okay, it. now, so when that happens in Wales, we have the hunting of the what now? Hunting of the wren. And tell me how that plays what, out. What it was, nowadays they'd use a, a false one, but you used a real wren, and you'd take it round in a box, a caged box, and people would pay to see it and they'd look at it. And you know, the way I look at it is this. When you're going round in Wales in winter, it can be a bit bleak and a bit dismal, but the bird you always see is the wren. 
So they bring the wren in the box to people who are sort of dreary and shut down by winter, and it brings a little bit of promise of life to them, and they pay some money to uh, take a look at it and brighten their day? Well, this is it. Winter's sleeping. Is it like a charity thing these days? Everybody kicks in some money? Yes, uh, yes, yes. Because I believe in Ireland it's a charity for some good cause. Yeah, the the, the money in the past would go to the party that did it, but now, of course, there'd be songs accompanying it, but but now the money goes to charity, yeah. Let's talk New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve coming up. Do the Welsh just uh, have the same traditions as the English, or how would you celebrate New Year's Eve in Wales? New Year's Eve in Wales nowadays is uh, much done the same as it is elsewhere. We tend to have the fireworks. Fireworks at midnight. Uh, London's got uh, the uh, Trafalgar Square activities. What is considered the cultural Trafalgar Square or Times Square of Wales? Is there something like that? You get it in Cardiff. Down on Cardiff Bay, you get fireworks. Uh, one of the things people that, tune into the television and watch the New Year. Yeah, they Cardiff. do. Yes, they do have it in Cardiff. Now, what's the drink of choice? Are people drinking wine or hard liquor or beer or what? Beer is the, is the most popular drink, and, and, and sadly, I think so. Beer was there was wassailing, uh, which in Wales, the blessing of orchards for fruit coming, and that was done in beer. The other one that customly got at New Year's in Wales was Kalenig or Klenig. Uh, depending if you came, Clenning in, in North Wales influential and Calenning down in the South Wales, where groups of children would come to your house and, and you were supposed to give them money. They'd give. What would they do in return? Would they sing? Would they? They would. Uh, poems, there would be some singing. Uh, one of the old. Uh, Young Klen- people come door to door reading, right. reciting poetry. Yes, so yes, Welsh. Yeah. And then, and then you, you give them a present? Yes. Uh, one of them is Mi Goddais Hedyu Masom Ti. And this is from South Wales. I'm Kod and Pastum Gidami Adamaneges Arach Traus. And what this is, is um, I got up early this morning, I got my stick and I got my bag and I came out and here's my message to you, fill my bag with bread and cheese. (laughs) Fill my bag with bread and cheese. Would bread and cheese satisfy the kids these days? Well, I don't think so. Now, in the United States, we uh, dedicate the uh, first day of the year to overcoming the partying from the last night and watching a great football game. What's, What's the activity on the first day of the year in Wales? You get New Year's rugby because rugby... Ah. is the game in, well, particularly in South Wales, but again, traditions, and played at Christmas. Uh, there was a game... New called, Year's Rugby. Is it sort of yeah. a, the, the big cup game then? Yeah. You, you get, on New Year's. It's, it's not the big cup games, but it's all over Christmas. On Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, and on New Year's Day, you get these rugby games. And in days gone by, and we're talking, ooh, certainly recorded in the 17th century, there was a game called Knappan, which approximated to rugby, but it was played between whole villages. And there were was wow. horrible, bloody things, where all you had to do was get this thing from one village to the other one to win. And... Oh, dear. Broken bones, head and throats. I love the way that every culture celebrates the holidays a different way, and every culture has its own way to wish someone a happy Christmas and a beautiful New Year. Wish me in Welsh a happy holiday. And specifically, what was that? That was Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Say it again, please. Thank you very much. Martin Delandovitz coming to us from Northern Wales with a little insight into a Welsh holiday season. Thanks, Martin. Thank you. We're placing a call to Conway in Wales next as the owner of a sheep farm that welcomes visitors lets us in on what it takes to make a living raising sheep. He'll also talk about the tricks for training those sheep dogs. We're at 877-333-RICK. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And right now, we're going to get into sheep. I mean, this is going to be an interview about sheep appreciation for travelers. It may seem like a strange topic, but when you travel, you encounter sheep everywhere. The Cotswold villages in England are the most charming villages anywhere. Why? Because of all the wealth brought to them by their sheep and the wool in uh, generations past. And you travel in the Lakes District, and one of the top things to do is go to a sheep center where you get to see 18 different breeds of sheep. If you've got any luck, you'll be at the B&B and they'll be shearing sheep tonight and you can uh, actually get in there and help them out. Traveling in Turkey, you meet nomadic Kurds and, and their whole world is sheep and goats. 
in Ireland. Uh, of course, one of the most beautiful photo ops is when the sheep are clogging the roads and you jump out and, uh, and take a photograph. Sheep outnumber the people in New Zealand these days 12 to 1. There's a whole genre of jokes down in New Zealand for sheep. Uh, in Scotland, a friend told me they clear the road by hollering mint sauce. There's so much going on for sheep in your travels, and frankly, I can't even tell the difference between a sheep and a goat when I'm on the road, so I want to learn about sheep. And I got with me... Aladon is on the phone from Wales. Alad is a sheep herder who runs a company called Euphoria that shows the sheep culture and the sheepdog culture for travelers with shows every day. Alad, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Alad, I read on your website that you won the supreme title in the competition in 1999 with a sheepdog named Ron, is that right? And then the next year, a different sheepdog, Bob. That's it, yes. Um, I, I've been very fortunate to have uh, two really good dogs. Um, Roy uh, won the Supreme in 99, and Bob in 2000, and uh, that's my claim to fame, actually. Um, you know, having two dogs winning uh, the Supreme Championship, which is the um, ultimate trial here in the United Kingdom. Apparently, uh, you have, you have a, like a, a great-uncle who won the same competition 100 years ago. Uh, yes, actually, William Jones was his name, and uh, he was the first sheepdog handler from Wales that travelled over the border, although England isn't very far, but he was uh, apparently the first Welshman that competed in uh, different parts of England. So this is uh, probably not unusual to have sheep herding and, and sheep farming in the family for generation after generation in the north of Wales? Uh, no, it's quite common. I was up in the north of England in the Lakes District. It was the same thing. Uh, every other B&B uh, farm in the countryside has been many generations, father to son, father to son, uh, with sheep being their primary business. That's it, yes. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, things are changing a little bit these uh, last few years. Um, sheep farming isn't that profitable anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. But- my friend uh, up in uh, Keswick area in, in the Windermere Lakes District, we uh, helped him shear a sheep, and he bundled up the pelt, and he threw it at me, and it was the, like the whole overcoat of the sheep. And I held that, and he said, what do you think that's worth? And uh, I forget exactly, but uh, it was like just a couple of pounds. What would a, a, a entire pelt sell for these days? Well, it depends what uh, type of sheep it is. Of course, the mountain sheep that we've got here in uh, this part of uh, North Wales, they're very, very hardy. And for a hardy sheep, you need to... Uh, coarse wool. Of course, that type of wool isn't uh, the best quality. We'd be getting around, I suppose, about 50 pence for a whole fleece. And if you want to pay a sheep shearer to shear that sheep, that would cost over 50 pence. So So there's no profit at all in it. So you actually lose money by shearing a sheep given the the value of raw, rough wool on the market these days. That's it, yes. So that, given today's exchange rate, that's about a dollar for an entire pelt. Exactly. Yes. Wow. I've also, to round things out, I've got with me Simon Griffith. And Simon, um, I know him because he makes the best travel shows on TV. He's my uh, producer, and I've worked with him for six or seven years now. Yeah. But Simon goes back, back, back to the New Zealand days in his life when he was a sheep herder. Well, uh, yeah, it's hard not to have some interaction with sheep when you're growing up in New Zealand. My dad was a, a veterinary surgeon, and uh, my brother-in-law was a, a sheep farmer, so... I kind of grew up spending a lot of time on on sheep farms. Just so you'd just, help out. There's a boy around, and he'd help out. Yeah, yeah. You're telling me he'd have dogs as well. But then I was kind of like an addition to his dogs, and uh, you know, had to run up the hills and and. Uh, so it's kind of all hands on deck. All hands on deck. Yeah. <laughs> I heard in 1982 there was 72 million sheep in New Zealand, and today it's down to 43 million, but that still outnumbers New Zealanders more than 10 to one. Yeah, there's a definitely been a, a change. Even I've noticed it now. The last time I went back, uh, certain hills that used to, when you arrive, they're just these green hills with these little white dots on them. And now, uh, because of economics and differences, they have cattle on them now. It's, it's there's been a, a trend. Now there's still plenty of sheep to go around. I don't think people have to get worried about going to New Zealand not seeing their dose of sheep. But definitely, you you can notice it. I know a lot of. Um hogs and chickens are being raised indoors, just kind of become big industry. Is that happening with sheep also, and and we're going to get less of the picturesque open-air grazing? No, I can't see that, of course. There are a few farmers that keep sheep in for lambing time, actually. I've got uh, a couple of hundred sheep inside the shed uh, at the time being, but as soon as they lamb, they'll be outside. So they'll be in for about six weeks. Uh, We scanned them just the beginning of the year, found the twins, the ones that were carrying twins, uh, the ones that have singles, the singles are outside and the twins are inside, but they're out as soon as the lambs are, say, 48 hours old. So now, twins, is that common for sheep to have twins then? 
It is very common these days. Of course, uh, since the war, um, farmers were uh, given subsidy to improve the land. And the better the land, uh, the higher uh, fertility rate. So, um, you know, there are more and more twins nearly every year. So when I say better land, higher fertility, how does that work? Well, of course, um, when I started farming on my own 25 years ago now, we were told to reseed the land every five or six years to improve the land. And, of course, by doing that, the land was improving all the time. And, of course, stock were getting uh, much stronger as well, bigger and more fertile. So um, we are having a lot more lambs. If you went back 40 years, 100% lambing would be really good. Um, But now some farmers, especially in the lowlands, are uh, looking at 160 or even 170% lambing for every 100 head of sheep that you've got. So you'd get 160, 170 babies for every 100 sheep you have on your farm every uh, year. Especially in the lowlands. You know, when I'm going around the countryside, I see these markings on the sheep. And somebody told them that the, the sheep farmers can tell if they've um, actually, what's the word, copulated, um, if they've got a, a certain mark on them. Does the paint have anything to do with whether they've uh, mated? Yes, it is. We've got markers on the rams. Usually we start with a very light, maybe a light green mark. And, of course, if he mates a sheep, then there'll be a light green mark there. And then... Uh, of course, after, uh, say, 16 or 17 days, we'll change that crayon. We'll put a, a different color, say, a blue color. And uh, then we'll turn the ram back, and uh, there might be two or three sheep that might be with that colored. So um, later on, we'll go through the sheep. We'll see the ones with the light green. We'll know exactly when those sheep will be having lambs. It'll be in the first cycle, so in the first three weeks. Do you think that that just automatically translates into um, a pregnancy, or is that like you can't draw any conclusions there because of the luck of nature? Uh, yes. What we're looking for, um, you know, to um, especially if you have sheep that are inside, um, you don't want them in too long. So the ones with the green mark, as I say, if they're starting lambing on the 1st of March, okay. for instance, then you know the ones with the green mark they'll be finished within those first 16 days. So the girls with marks, you take them inside? Uh, yes, all, well, all the sheep that are, are carrying twins. Okay. But you'll know exactly that the ones with a green mark on their backs, that those will have their lambs in the first couple of weeks. Just from a sightseeing point of view for us tourists, where does the paint on the ram go? Um, it's on the brisket. It's like a strap that we've got on that hooks over the shoulder, and uh, so that's on the brisket itself. So that's on, his, on his chest. Yes. And then if you see the paint on the back of a of a uh, of a of the sheep, of a sheep yes. you know that sheep's going to be going in pretty soon. Yes, that that I sheep will be hopefully having some lambs. You all, you always hear people joke about how dumb the sheep are. I mean, if you're driving around Ireland or Wales, you can't get down the road because the sheep just look at you when you got your car coming right at them. Yeah. Are, are they as dumb as they as they act basically? Some people think they are dumb, but um, personally, I don't think they're, they're quite that dumb. Um, they can actually know the difference between vehicles. Uh, there's a friend of mine that uh, has some land not far from me here, and uh, he comes up maybe every three days. And uh, the sheep know that he's coming when he's about a quarter of a mile away. They can recognize the sound of his vehicle. Wow, and that's, that's uh, really incredible. I'm talking with Alad Owen from the north of Wales. He runs a company called Euphoria, which shares the sheep culture with travelers. And I'm also talking with my friend Simon Griffith, who grew up in New Zealand working on a sheep farm. Alad, we've got a caller on the line from Bainbridge Island in Washington uh, who's got some thoughts on uh, sheep and her travels. Wendy, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you for having me on. Yeah. What was your sheep experience in your travels? Oh, it was in 2004 we went to um, the Cotswolds as part of our trip to um, England and, you know, we visited London, but one of the things that I noticed on the roads as we drove around the back roads of the Cotswolds was that um, you could, you know, see sheep pretty much everywhere you looked. And every time I'd come to a market town, I would assume that I would find um, a yarn shop. <laughs> but um, I, I was naive and didn't know that most of the sheep in that area were used for making rugs. 
uh, one of the things I looked forward to was maybe getting to see some lambing, and we were very fortunate to um, happen to be in the area of um, Blenheim Castle and um, looked through one of the local, like, magazines that has places to stay near specific areas like Blenheim and happened upon this particular listing for a Spring Hill farm, which is in Whitney, just outside of Blenheim. And it happened to mention that it was a working farm, but it didn't say anything more about it. But I thought, well, it's, you know, it's, it's close to where we're going to be. Let's go there. So we were so delighted to find that when we arrived there, that the woman was very hospitable, but she also had to go out and do her chores. And it turned out that she was, they were at the absolute peak of their lambing season. And so we um, followed her back to the barns and, and were able to um, bottle feed bummer lambs and watch all of these moms and their pens with their markings on their back that identified the moms to the um, lambs. And then there was this big pen where all these other ewes were about to give birth. And I just got the giggles because I, I was so excited because I'd finally gotten to see what I thought I would see. So this was just a bonus from your bed and breakfast oh, experience in small town Britain. Simon, what season is lambing season? Is it a certain time of the year? Yeah, it's, you usually time it so that the uh, springtime growth uh, on the grass so that they arrive when the mothers can eat good grass and produce a lot of milk. And that's where you get uh, the best spring lamb, of course, too, a little, a little while later. But that's <laughs> spring. That's that's going in the whole roast cycling pig sort of <clears throat> direction. Uh, Elliot, is that true in Wales also that you'd probably be lambing mostly in the spring? Yes, it is. Yes, now, yes. Now, spring in New Zealand would be a different time of year, right? So you're yes, talking exact, what month? Exact opposite. Uh, down there, it's it would be like September. September, and in Wales, it would be April, March. May, March, 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 and April. So, if you're really interested in uh, having this uh, farm experience and seeing the lambing in action. And basically, that's the season when uh, 100 sheep are having 160 lambs, if that's a good ratio, right, Alad? Yes. That would be a good time to travel, is March or, or April or something like that, in, in Britain. Yes. Yes, it would be. And where would I go if I wanted to, um, the wool for, for hand knitting? Um, is there a particular area of England or Wales where I would go where I would find that kind of wool? Well, you can find it all over the country. The type of sheep that we keep in North Wales, uh, the hill breeds, those, and of course up in Scotland as well, uh, and the north of England, those are the hill breeds. Uh, the best wool comes from the lowland breeds, or the down sheep, uh, uh, the Oxford down, um, the, uh, and a few others, the Ryland sheep. It's very, very good quality, very fine quality wool, and that's of course, is the, the best type of wool for weaving and so on. Uh, Wendy, thank you so much for your call. I appreciate your having me on. And, uh, Wendy, in your future travels, when you're traveling, you can look for these sheep shows, and they actually show off the different breeds. Alec, do you show off different breeds in, in your sheep show? Uh, yes, we do. We've oh. got uh, 13 different breeds of sheep. 13 but... different, and each would have a different sort of characteristic of their wool. Yes, then. yes. All right. Okay, thanks again, Wendy, for thank your call. Thank you. Bye-bye. From a practical sightseeing tip... Children love to feed sheep and goats. Is it dangerous? Have you ever had a child lose a finger by feeding goats or sheep? Uh, not feeding sheep, no. Feeding lambs. That's what we usually do. Uh, we feed lambs uh, up to the, the middle of June, you know, when lambs are smaller, of course. But no, there's no problem with but that. But if you're just walking around and maybe hiking and you come across some old sheep in a farm and you want to feed them, is it completely safe? Oh, it's completely safe, but but uh, you just see an old sheep, they're not going to come up to you or anything. I mean, the, your only best bet would be when they have little lambs and they, and they have a bottle, you know, in a place like Ella's. Oh, you know, in, a, and they, in a petting and, farm or something. A, yeah, or, or at a farm like his. I mean, do you do that, Ella? Do, do you have bottle-fed yes, lambs? Yes, yes. Yeah. For the see, first two months of the season, we'll have pet lambs there. Oh, yeah. uh, maybe half a dozen or, uh, or a few more, depending on how unlucky we've been with the lambing ourselves. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, there'll be pet lambs there for the first couple of months. But from a from a parent's point of view, if you're out hiking, you see sheep, they're not going to bite your kids. No, <laughs> no, they no. Will sheep not. will usually walk away They'll from you. They'll go away. They're, they're real scaredy cats. And yeah. what about electric fences? Are there still electric fences in use? There are, but uh, not on our farm. Some farmers use the... Um, the mobile ones, you know, that the, they, they move uh, okay. every couple of uh, days. Does a human being need to be worried about an electric fence? Well, I hate them. I don't like them at all yeah. myself, yeah. personally. But, uh, and no, my, my advice uh, would be uh, to avoid those, yeah, because yes, I mean, I nowadays 
they pack a punch. Really? Uh, and they, How they, do you they, test they, it? You get a piece of long piece of grass. And, and then, what happens? And then you just you won't feel anything. And then as you slide the piece of grass toward the electric fence, you'll start to feel the pulse. So you so can you, slowly build the, the electric shock power yeah. by sliding the grass toward you. Yep. Wow. My dad always told me if you, if you touched it on the inside of your hands, the impulse would make yeah. your fist grab it. So you could yeah. test it by hitting it on the back of your hands when there's no way to grab it. It, it. That's a good suggestion, but they're usually they're not. Electric fences aren't that powerful, but the no. other suggestion is don't pee on them. Mm-hmm. Don't pee on them. Why not? Yeah. yeah um, best thing to do is to get somebody else to test it. Alid, <laughs> <laughs> right now, you know, you're, you're doing sheep as a business, but as you said, it's tough to make money with wool. Are you having to supplement your income by opening up to tourists and, and putting on your demonstration and your cultural show? Yes, that's the, uh, that's the whole idea. Of course, 10 years ago, we had 550 head of sheep and 90 head of cattle. And, of course, BAC broke out. Uh, the mad cow disease broke out 10 years ago. And uh, the cattle uh, went downhill. Well, actually, we were only getting around 50% of what we were uh, before BAC broke out. And, of course, uh, in the late 90s, uh, lambs started to go downhill as well. And, uh, of course, in 2001, foot to mouth broke out in this country. So that was devastating. Um, mm. So that was uh, what made me diversify. Boy, what a frustrating thing because you have no control over that. No control whatsoever. You could be the best sheep farmer in Wales and still your economics could uh, be dictated to you. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Well, I hope that um, sheep farming doesn't just survive as a, a tourist attraction. Do you think that the, the sheep culture and, and the farms and the sheep dogs and so on will survive? I hope they will. Um, of course, people have to eat. And uh, these hills that we've got uh, here in the United Kingdom, this part of Wales, and of course the north of England, you can't do much with this type of land other than keep sheep and a few cattle. We can't grow any corn or anything like that so it's marginal um, on, on, on the tops here. So, yeah. um, and of course, you've got to have farmers to keep the country looking as well as it does. So hopefully there will be something for the future generations. Wow. Well, I can attest to how the sheep add to the ambience of Wales, that's for sure. Yes. If you've got a sheepdog or border collie within earshot of your radio, you might want to make sure they're on the leash. That's because coming up next, Alid and I will demonstrate some of the calls that he uses to train his dogs to herd the flock. Plus, we have a new set of listener travel haiku. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. One of the fun things about travel is getting acquainted with the country's culture and even its little rivalries. Scottish tour guide Anne Doig lets us in on an old saying that does reinforce some of the stereotypes inside the British Isles, but it does it with a gentle sense of humor. This little poem illustrates our humor, I guess, but it starts with, first you have the Welsh who prey on their knees and on their neighbors, then you have the Irish who don't know what they want, but they'll fight you for it anyway. Then you have the Scots, who keep the Sabbath and everything else they can get their hands on. And then you have the English, who are a self-made race, which absolves Almighty God of a great deal of responsibility. I'm Rick Steves, and I'm joined today by Simon Griffith, who has raised Helping with the Family Flocks in New Zealand. 
And on the phone from his farm in North Wales is Alad Owen, who's recognized as one of the best sheepdog breeders in all of Britain. Now, one thing I was so impressed when I visited uh, your farm, Alad, was the uh, mastery that the sheepdogs had over the sheep and the mastery you, as, as the herder, had over the dogs. Can you explain a little bit about how you work with the sheepdogs? How do you train them? Uh, how are they able to just mesmerize these sheep? Well, of course, uh, the dogs that we use here on, on this farm are border collies originally from the borders of Scotland. It's a breed specially to work stock. They'll actually work cattle or reindeer uh, and, of course, sheep. It's a natural instinct that they've got. Um, you can't train this instinct into a dog. It's got to be there before you can do anything with him. It's lovely to see some of these pups, seven, eight, nine weeks old, uh, take them out to the sheep and to see that instinct. Wow. And uh, Of course, we can't start training them until they're physically and mentally strong enough, so, you know, eight, ten months old before we can start properly. And part of the training is getting them to respond to your whistle for different commands? Yes, yes, yes. Of course, when they're pups with their mother, they look up to their mother because she's the one that's feeding them. The mother is the center of attention. Uh, uh, Once they're weaned, when mum gets fed up with them, of course, we start feeding them, then they'll start looking up to us, to the handler. And that's the bond that we want. We want that dog to understand uh, that we're their friend. So uh, you replace the mother, actually? Yes, in a way, we take over from the mother. Once pups are six to eight weeks old, uh, the mother gets fed up of them. So we start feeding and taking them over and talking to them and so on. So that's when the training begins. Alex, I was so enamored by your command of the dog with the whistles. Can you share with us some of these whistles? First of all, just mechanically, do you whistle with a, a little metal whistle, or do you whistle with your fingers or nothing at all? Um, I whistle with my fingers, especially when the dogs are quite far away. When they're close by, um, I use verbal commands such as come by. Uh, doesn't make much sense, but come by means go to the left. And the whistle command that goes with that command is a, a, a short, sharp whistle. Uh, would you like to hear it? I would love to hear it. Okay, this is it. So that's the go left command. Go left, and that, and that would be come here in sheepdog jargon. Yes, in a way, and yes. Then, and what's another whistle then? Uh, uh, the go right command. So that is a two-tone command. And, of course, you've got to have these commands, these whistle sounds very different uh, to each other, uh, especially when the dog is, say, half a mile or even further away. Um, it's got to be distinctive. Wow. And uh, what's another command? Uh, the stop command, which, of course, is the main command. If, if your dog doesn't stop, then uh, you've got big problems. And uh, this is the, uh, the stop command. The verbal command is lie down, and the whistle command is... Um, so it's a, a high-low type of uh, whistle. And then what else would you communicate to a dog when you're out there doing your work? Right. If I want the dog to come forward, um, again, it's a different type of whistle. You can tell him walk on, and the whistle command is, uh, which is uh, the same sounding type again but uh, of course very different to the others okay so that would bring the dog and the sheep obviously toward yes, you yes and are those the four major commands stop go to the left go to the right and bring them forward yes and of course the recall if you've driven uh, of course here on the mountains uh, we need sometimes to drive the sheep up to the top of the hill and uh, so we get the dog to do that, obviously, while we're standing down the bottom of the hill. And once the dog has driven the sheep far enough, then you can call the dog back. And uh, that whistle sounds a little bit like this. And that's, that's to drive them away? Uh, no, that's to call the dog back. Um, he's already driven oh, the I sheep see. away. So they come back without the sheep? Without the sheep. Leave the sheep up there and... Uh, the dog, you whistle the dog back. Okay, so I'm going to be the, um, the the student dog, okay? You give yeah. me the whistle, and I will tell you what I'm going to do. Okay. I'm running over to the left. I'm that's great. I'm, I'm, is that right? Yeah, that's okay. correct. I'm running to the left. Now tell me something else. 
Stop. Uh, I'm stopping. That's great. I stopped. Okay, now I'm ready to do... They're so frisky, aren't they? They're like, they just want to help out. Yep. And um, the next command... <laughs> oh, I'm going to the right with them. I'm, I'm taking them to the right, Alad. That's, that's great. I'm taking them. There's six of them. Stop. I stopped. That's another stop. I'm bringing them to, I'm bringing them to you. That, uh, yes. I'm, I'm bringing them in. That's it. Now what do I do? Stop. Stop. I stopped. Now I'm going to, now I'm going to leave them and I'm going to come back to you. Oh, I'm a good sheepdog. Yeah, yeah, you'll make a really good sheepdog. Oh, man, that was fun. I can see how you can get trained. Yeah, yes. What are you going to reward me if I do a good job? A, a pat on the head, usually. That's all? Uh, <laughs> and, of course, a, a few kind words. That's the, uh, that's the reward that these dogs get. Oh, man, just kind yeah. words and a pat on the head. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's all they need. Hey, um, and they love it. Simon's having a good time listening to the Simon. How does that relate to the, the sheep whistles and so on that, that you grew up with? It's actually very, very, very similar. It's uh, just hearing Ayla talking in Wales and New Zealand, very similar. I mean, each farmer can have a slight variation both in, in the, the words and the whistles, but essentially it's, it's all exactly the same. And then when the, the one thing to kind of keep in mind is that, you know, that as you're sending the dog away, you, you have to sort of think left and right. And then as the dog's coming towards you with the sheep in between you and the dog, you have to give sort of reverse or left and right because you have to think from the oh, dog's yeah. point of view. <laughs> but um, in New Zealand, there's, there's one other type of dog because the Border Collies were imported from England originally and they're still used as uh, very much the way we just heard. They're silent and they have this incredible eye connection with they stare at the sheep and in New Zealand they're just called eye dogs they don't bark at all it's just purely their presence at first the sheep move because they just see the dog and then sometimes it comes up to almost a stare off between the, the sheep and the and the dogs and, and as Ella can tell you he can give some whistles to like you know like walk up and you have to tell the dogs to kind of keep walking toward these these sheep that keep staring and staring so he's hypnotized at them almost. Oh, absolutely. They can be like staring at each other's eyes and then the dog always wins, I think. But in oh. New Zealand, there was also another, um, because the flocks of sheep were much bigger, I think, than, than back in Britain. They developed another breed called a hunterway, which also just works sheep. And they they do actually bark, but they, they muster sheep with their voice more than uh, oh barking just, yeah because I don't think barking is a very classy way to sheep well them. when you're when you've got like maybe thousands of sheep and you're working okay. and, and they're way over the hill completely you can't see the dog you have to just trust the dog huh. and you're you're telling the dog just to go you know to go to the right go to the right and keep going keep going to the right and these dogs will use their barks and they will hear and, and you you may not see anything either sheep hmm. or nor dogs for a, quite a while and you keep just trusting your commands and then next thing here's this big flock of you know wow. hundreds sometimes thousands of sheep just kind of coming over the brow of the hill with these dogs barking but then once they've done their job you use these other dogs the eye dog and they go back into their silent mode and just steer the dogs just by their their presence they're very very quick they can go left and right and they often make their own decisions as well i mean they're they, well, they know what they're supposed to be doing a good them. dog i'm sure Ella yeah. would agree a really good dog and like his champion i think they sometimes know the sheep if you want to know more about sheep uh, commands there's actually a website <laughs> i went to this website it's sheepdogwhistle.com sheepdogwhistle.com. Is that right, Alad? Yes, it is. Yeah, yes. you can uh, practice your sheep commands there. I want to talk very quickly to help tourists know what they're looking at. First of all, when you're traveling, Alad, how do you tell the difference between a male and a female sheep when you're just driving around? Is there any way easy? <laughs> well, uh, the breed of sheep here in North Wales are Welsh Mountain uh, sheep. The males have horns. The females don't. Okay. So that's that's, that's, that's the pretty basic. Uh, that's the easy way to tell them apart here in North Wales. That's in North Wales, but it's uh, not. Yes, yes. It, but it course, doesn't always um, apply everywhere. Most sheep these days they haven't got horns at all, uh, like the uh, the Suffolks, um, which is a very very popular sheep over here, and of course in America as well. Um, you don't see any Suffolks with uh, with horns. But if you see a sheep with a horn, you know it's it's a guy. Yes, you've got to maybe turn him over. <laughs> Have a look. <laughs> I'm so much more 
tuned into my sightseeing now. This is great. Now, you know, we know that some cow breeds are, are for milk and some cow breeds are for beef, right? Is it the same with sheep for wool versus meat? Yes. Um, uh, for instance, the sheep that we've got over here down in the south of England, that's the greyface Dartmoor, for, for instance. That's a wool breed. And you'll get maybe around 24 pounds of wool from that sheep in one year. Whereas the meat breed, like the Suffolk, you'll only get maybe four pounds of wool. So if you breed for meat, you lose out on wool. Breed for wool, and you lose out on meat. If you're breeding for meat, does the quality of the meat you're producing, is it affected greatly by the quality of the food they're eating. I know in Spain, for instance, that the uh, pigs that are fed acorns make by far the best jamón, you know, and and the bacon from the pigs that eat in the valleys of the acorns is very, very expensive. Yes, uh, would yes. that be true for sheep as well? And would people who really know their, their lamb meat be tuned into that when they go shopping in Britain? Well, people uh, always ask me, um, why is uh, the hill breed or Welsh lamb uh, so tasty, and I think that it's uh, the, the type of sheep that we keep again here is uh, a very agile type of sheep. Um, it's it's got to be able to walk miles in a day, whereas the lowland breeds like the Suffolks and the Texels and so on, they're very, very heavy sheep and uh, try and move them more than 200 yards and uh, you'll be struggling. You know, so it's a heavier type of sheep. Well, that's what I think anyway. That's a uh, uh, the tastier meat comes from that type of sheep, the more agile type of sheep. Oh. Actually, one thing I can add that I learned actually being in Europe is uh, the sheep that are famous around Mont Saint-Michel and in Brittany, it's almost a marshland, a salty marshland, mm. and that's a very, very sought-after uh, yeah. lamb as well because connoisseurs of good lamb can actually oh, yeah. taste the salt and taste the sea and taste the... Yeah. So their meat is definitely affected by what they graze on. All right. And what is mutton? Mutton is uh, meat that's over 12 months old, a sheep that's over 12 months old. So it's the opposite of roast suckling uh, lamb. Yep. Roast suckling lamb would be the most tender, right? That would be yes. lamb that has only had mother's milk. That's it, yes. Is that yes. popular uh, in the Britain? spring lamb, that's what they... Uh, those are the lambs that sell best. Is that the term, Alad, uh, is spring lamb? Yes. Because yes. I think yes. roast suckling is a little bit of a turnoff. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, actually, in Spain, they're in Spain they're a little cruder, and they just call it roast suckling. Uh, but the opposite of that then would be mutton. Yes, very old, tough, yes. gamey. Yes, but of course, years ago, that's what most people uh, ate was mutton. Yeah, and I heard Prince Charles was just trying to uh, spiff up mutton's reputation. Yes, why yes, would he, he do that? He's doing a good job. Why? Why would he be promoting mutton? Um, well, of course, again, going to the hill hill farms uh, with the poorer grass. It's very, very difficult to fatten them. So years ago, um, farmers used to keep their lambs for another 12 months. So they'd be 18 months old by the time they'd be ready. Oh. So that's what mutton was, you see. Uh, but of course, what farmers, most farmers in the lowlands are looking for is for a lamb that will be ready by the time it's six months old or less. If you want to eat mutton in a restaurant, can you find it on a menu? Actually, I haven't seen any mutton for years. For how many years? Um, lots of years. Lots of years, okay. I, I can't recall seeing uh, mutton on the, on the menu at we'll all. We'll see if Prince Charles can bring it back. Alad is, uh, he'll be featured on, on one of our TV shows on public television, and Alad has a wonderful farm near a town called Corwin, C-O-R-W-E-N. It's in North Wales, which has, I think, the greatest concentration of sightseeing attractions arguably anywhere in Britain. I love northern Wales. Alad has a very welcoming farm that he uh, lets the uh, travelers come in, and, and we had a fascinating experience during the season. Uh, his uh, website, you can learn more about it, is a clever name, Euphoria. That's his company, E-W-E-P-H-O-R-I-A dot C-O dot U-K. In Britain, rather than dot com, they have dot C-O dot U-K. When does Euphoria welcome guests? April onwards until uh, the end of October. And, Alad, I want you to... I'm your sheepdog again. Give me the, the commands, and I'm gonna, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to the left, Alad. I'm going to the left. I'm stopping. I'm, now what do I do? I'm stopping. I got my sheep here. They're, they're not going anywhere. I'm your dog. I'm coming forward. I'm bringing them forward. Am I correct? I'm still bringing them forward. Oh, I don't know what to... Oh, I'm stopping. Yes, I'm stopping with my sheep. 
Uh, I'm taking back to the right, Alad. I'm taking him back to the right. I'm stopping. I've stopped with all the sheep. It's cool. Okay, I'm coming back in. I did my job. That's great. Hey, here's to the sheepdog. Aladon, thank you so much for joining us. Okay. I want to thank uh, Simon Griffith for being with us and bringing a New Zealand angle on sheep herding. It was a pleasure. And Alad Owen from Northern Wales, thank you very much and best wishes with your ongoing work. Well, thank you very much. We'll see you again, I hope, soon. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I can clear the path and scatter the herd Spread them far and wide across the earth The whistle blows one high, one low As long as I hear the whistle I know Standing high on a hill over the sea I'm the true prince of Wales and the queen loves me I earn my place in history And they call me Corgi Tell us how you've been inspired in your travels in the form of an original haiku poem. The radio section of our website at ricksteves.com has details on how to send us your submissions. Here are some recent examples of what listeners have sent us. Aaron Cole of Sioux Falls, South Dakota gets to hear Travel with Rick Steves on South Dakota Public Radio. She wrote this haiku about her visit to San Diego. The beach at sunset, wading in the cool water, so worth the car trip. Kelly Westhoff from Minneapolis keeps a haiku blog online at haikuby2.com. She shares this one about Maui. Vacation dreaming. Did you know there's a place called Haiku Hawaii? And she adds this one she wrote in Rome. Sticky tabletop. Hot waiter winks. And I will forgive anything. And KUOW listener Clay Schwen of Muckleteo, Washington, sends us this one he calls Visiting the In-Laws. 1,600 miles. Good to see you. Yeah, you too. Where's the liquor store? Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more on our website. That's where you'll find links to our guests a forum for you to post your comments, and a link to send us your original haiku. That's also where you can listen to this program again and search for prior shows by topic. It's all in the radio section at ricksteves.com. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves Online Travel Store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Britain, Ireland, and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.